Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Scripture for today's teaching is Mark 12, 35 through 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk along, around, in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys can grab a seat. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Aaron Addison. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at uh, Frontline South. Um, So uh, one of the greatest sporting events of the 20th century was the Rumble in the Jungle. Does anyone know what that is at all? Maybe some of the older crowd possibly. Um, So this was a boxing match back in the 70s between George Foreman. Yes, before he made grills, he boxed, and uh, Muhammad Ali. And, uh, and Foreman was greatly favored to win the match. He was younger than Ali, he was faster than Ali, and he was really known for his, his powerful punches. I mean, he was just super strong. And Ali kind of going into this match, he knew he couldn't like outpunch George Foreman and he couldn't outpower him, so he came up with a different strategy, which he later called the rope-a-dope. Right? I don't know if you've heard of this, but the rope-a-dope. So kind of what he did was he actually taunted Foreman kind of while they were fighting. And then he would lean back and just lean up against the ropes and kind of guard his face and his body the best he could and dodge up and just let George Foreman unload on him. Like he just leaned back, he basically taunted him, and then he just would kind of guard the best he could. And he did this for round after round after round. And George Foreman ended up throwing about 200 punches more than Muhammad Ali, about twice as many as Ali did. And then once he hit about the seventh round or so, Foreman started running out of steam, right? He he had worn himself out unloading on Ali. And Foreman had greatly misjudged uh, Muhammad Ali and his strategy. And so later reflecting, he says this. He said, 
I thought he was just one more knockout victim until about the seventh round, I hit him hard to the jaw and he held me and whispered in my ear, that all you got, George? I realized that this ain't what I thought it was. And in the eighth round, the much fresher Muhammad Ali ended up knocking out George Foreman in one of the greatest upsets in sports history. And here's kind of why I say that, is we are continuing our series in Mark where we've been in this gospel for nine months now. And we're at the point where Jesus is in the last week of his life, and he's entered the temple in Jerusalem. And the religious leaders, they have made it their mission to knock out Jesus, to take him down, right? So they're, they're trying to make him look silly. They're trying to put an end to his ministry. And little did they know Jesus was pulling a rope-a-dope on them. Okay? Jesus was just letting them unload on him again and again and again. So the chief priests, they're like, hey, what authority do you have to do this? They question it. Others tried to pull him into political divisions. Still others tried to kind of catch him in philosophical riddles and puzzles. And Jesus withstood all of it. He answered wisely. He, in fact, made them look foolish and won lots of the crowd over. He just let them punch themselves out to where at the end of it, we read just before this in Mark 12, 34, it says, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They'd question him. They tried to trap him. They had done all this stuff. And eventually they go, we have to stop. He is just, we can't do this anymore. They'd punch themselves out. They'd misjudge who Jesus was. In essence, they landed that right hook only to hear Jesus say, is that all you got? This ain't what they thought it was. And now Jesus was turning the tables and now that they had kind of worn themselves out, Jesus was going on the offensive. It was now his turn to ask questions of them. It was his turn to scrutinize them. And he was going to show them indeed how wrong they were, not just about him, but about everything. Jesus is going to reveal some things to them that they don't see quite clearly. And in doing so, reveal some things to us. Because things are not always the way that they seem. And as Jesus reveals, we're going to see that this ain't quite what we thought it was. So, a few things that Jesus reveals to us in this passage. First thing, Jesus is revealed as judge. Jesus is revealed as judge. So in the temple, Jesus challenges the authority of the scribes. And if you're kind of unsure of what a scribe is, they were kind of part theologian, part lawyer. In other words, they were the smartest person in the room, right? They were the wisest person in the room. They, their job was to read and understand and teach the scriptures. So if you had a question about what God thinks about something, how to understand a passage of the Bible, you would go to the scribes and they would tell you. They would say, here's what the Torah says. Here is how we interpret this passage of scripture. The scribes were the people that you would go to. And Jesus in the temple, which represented kind of the place of their authority, it's like their home. Jesus is walking into their home and he is going to make them look silly. And he's going to challenge one of their core beliefs about who the Messiah is, who the Christ would be, which is this long-awaited king that they had been waiting for. And here's what he says in verse 35. 
And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Let's just stop right there for a second. Okay, who's David? Why are we bringing in some other people? What's going on here? Let me kind of try to help you out. David was the greatest king that Israel had ever had. He had, lived a, uh, he had lived hundreds of years before this point, and before he died, God made David a promise that one of his descendants would be the Messiah. And Messiah is a Hebrew word that just means the anointed one. And what they meant by that is this would be a king whose kingdom would spread over the whole world and last forever. And the religious leaders of the day, so the scribes and the Pharisees, they had a very particular idea, very particular interpretation of what the Messiah would look like. And in their mind, this king would be this warrior rebel, if you will, who would come and basically deliver the Jews from Roman rule. Because at the time, they were under the hand of the Roman Empire. So they're like, he's going to come, he's going to kick Rome out, and he's going to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. So they expected that this king would essentially pick back up where David left off. That's kind of how they understood him being the son of David. As David's son, he would establish a kingdom that looked like David's kingdom. But Jesus, he pushes back on this idea and reveals to us in an even fuller way who he really is. So in verse 36, Jesus continued, he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. Pause right there for just one second. As just an aside, can I just say how astounding it is that Jesus makes a statement about scripture like that? That he is about to quote a piece of scripture and what he says is, David himself wrote this. Not some editor thousands of years later. And that he wrote it in the Holy Spirit meaning God himself inspired it. Jesus here, in kind of an aside, is giving us this nod to how he views the authority of Scripture. And if you want to know the reason why followers of Jesus believe and embrace the Scriptures as God's word, it's because Jesus did. It's because Jesus did, and this is just one example of where we see that. But let's continue. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared... The Lord said to my Lord, and just to kind of help you out with that, the first Lord here in Hebrew is actually referring to God, and the second Lord would be like a master or a king or something like that. So the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So Jesus here is quoting from a psalm, Psalm 110, to show that David, he didn't think of the coming king as his son, but he thought of him as his Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't a descendant of David, because we see all throughout the New Testament they affirm that. It's not talking, the question's not about blood, it's about authority. The king that Israel was waiting for wasn't going to model his kingdom after David, Rather, David was going, had modeled his kingdom after the Messiah, after the coming king. The king wasn't going to have a kingdom quite like David's. He was going to have a different kind of kingdom. 
The Messiah, he was going to rule not from Jerusalem to create some earthly kingdom, but he was going to rule from God's right hand. His kingdom was going to be this heavenly kingdom, a spiritual kingdom that would transform the world. And Jesus, in a way, by continuing to press the issue and continuing to talk about the Messiah, he was subtly kind of saying, hey guys, this is me. I'm here. I'm the one, not some rebel warrior who's going to destroy everyone. I'm the king you are looking for. But there's something else I want you to see in this. And that is Jesus' nod to his authority, not just as king, but as judge. So notice that this psalm and what Jesus quotes, what does it say? That the Lord uh, is going to sit at the right hand of God until his enemies are put under his feet. And later on, the psalm continues to describe the authority that this king would have over his enemies. So he says this in Psalm 110. He says, the Lord, or the Messiah, is at your right hand, O God. The Lord's at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. So the Messiah, the Christ, the king, he would come to judge his enemies. But notice this, when Jesus comes, he doesn't go to Rome. He doesn't go to the governor of Judah He doesn't go to King Herod, who's ruling over the Jews. Instead, where does he go? To the temple. And who does he end up judging? The scribes, the religious leaders, the chief priests. Jesus was claiming in this, kind of setting us up, claiming in this, his authority, not just as king, but as judge. Now, this can be a hard pill to swallow because I don't know about you, but I don't typically think of Jesus as judging people, right? That's not the first thing that comes to my mind. I don't think, he's pretty judgmental. Like, that's not what comes to my mind when I think of Jesus. I mean, just last week, we heard a sermon, we read a part of scripture where Jesus had taught us that the most important commandments were to love God with all of our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So how can Jesus say that in one breath, and the very next he's going to judge others, and even with these scribes, he's going to condemn them? How can that happen? A couple of things. First, we have to remember that Jesus's judgment is driven by his love. If you've ever been wronged by somebody, in particular, if you've ever been abused, or assaulted by somebody, then you understand that sometimes judgment flows from love. That it's the loving thing to do to exact judgment on those who do us wrong. Love drives us to protect. And we know that it would not be loving to sit by and do nothing while the people we love are being harmed. We would all hate to kind of live in a place without some sort of justice system, right? Without a judge, without laws, with no way to exact penalties on those who do wrong. That would just be chaos. And everything in us, we feel the need that we need that. We need some sort of judgment, some sort of justice. 
Because Jesus loves this world, he judges those who threaten it, who oppress it, who bring evil into his good creation. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom where every wrong is righted, where every evil thing is done away with. His love drives him to judgment. And Jesus, he loves us enough to tell us the truth. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus made lots of people mad in his day. So mad they literally killed him. And it wasn't because he was just going up and giving hugs to everybody. It's because he said really hard things. It's because he peeled back the surface and revealed what was going on inside people's hearts, and they did not like that. Jesus, in essence, was making judgments. He was judging. The second thing we have to remember is that Jesus judges with true judgment. And here's what I mean, is even if we admit the need for some sort of judge in a situation, we don't want a judge who just decides flippantly, right? Or a judge who just decides on appearance. I mean, often when we talk about judging others, what we mean is making these negative conclusions based on just assumptions, right? So, for instance, if I uh, was being judgmental, most of the time what I mean by that is I see somebody who's dressed a certain way and I have a negative opinion about them without even knowing who they are. And you would say that's very judgmental, which it would be, because I made a negative opinion without all the facts. But Jesus is not that way. Jesus sees through all of that stuff and he knows who we truly are. He knows what is inside of us. He's not making assumptions. In some ways, he helps us even see ourselves more clearly because he sees ourselves even better than we see ourselves. So the scribes, let's come back to them. This whole time, they're expecting this king to come and this king's gonna judge their enemies. But Jesus ain't who they thought he was. He comes into their house he comes into the temple to judge them. And he reserves some of his harshest judgment for them. So the second thing, that leads us to the second thing. So Jesus is revealed as judge. Second thing, the scribes are revealed as hypocrites. The scribes are revealed as hypocrites. So Jesus goes on. In his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus kind of unloads on the scribes here a little bit. And really Mark is giving us the censored version so this is kind of the edited, abridged version of what Jesus actually spoke to the scribes. In Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, we get a longer account of this where, where Matthew, uh, he dedicates a whole chapter to Jesus rebuking, judging, and condemning the scribes. And over and over again in Matthew, he says this phrase. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 
Jesus, he judges these scribes for their hypocrisy. And we kind of see that here in Mark. What Jesus is pointing to is that instead of being religious, these scribes were using religion for their own gain. Jesus was seeing through the external, seeing through what was on the outside, and unveiling what was in their very hearts. And there's two particular things that Jesus points out here. First thing is that they were using religion for social status. So they wore clothes to make them stand out for the, from the crowd. So if a, if a scribe walked in, you would immediately know by the way that they were dressed that they were different, that they were a scribe. When they passed by down the street, commoners were expected to stand and give them greetings of honor. They were invited to feast and they were seated in the best places. And here's kind of the point. Instead of seeking to love God and love neighbor with their hearts, they were using religion to love themselves. The second thing is they used religion for financial gain. So these scribes, they dedicated their life to teaching the scriptures, and kind of as a rule, they refused to get paid to do so. And so they relied on the generosity of others to just live, which in itself is not a bad thing, but over time, this became grossly abused. And so when it talks about they made these long prayers with pretense, most likely what Jesus is referring to there is them praying in the streets in hopes that people would give them money. In essence, they were like street performers. So they're just out in the streets praying for people, and if you took a wrong corner and walked by, you were expected to give money to them. People were expected to give and support these scribes no matter what the cost of themselves. And here's the point in this. The scribes, these leaders, were building their own kingdom rather than building the kingdom of God. They were religious leaders. They were supposed to be the very ones leading people to God, and instead they were using religion to line their pockets and to feed their egos. And Jesus wants us to see the external does not match the internal. In fact, again in Matthew, in this kind of section, Jesus describes them as whitewashed tombs. So it's like this tomb that the rock on the outside has been bleached and washed, so it's pure and white. But when you open it up and look inside, it's filthy and full of dead bones and corpses. And that's how Jesus, to their face, is describing these scribes. Outside, you look really great. You look nice and clean and pure, but inside, not so much. Now, this has some very clear application for pastors and for ministry leaders and the temptations that we face by turning religion into a show. But don't miss this. Jesus, in this passage, in Mark, is not warning the scribes. He's warning the crowd. He says, beware of the scribes. He is giving them a warning because we are all liable to fall into hypocrisy like this. 
So we may try to show externally that everything is okay, but inside we are a hot mess. Maybe for you, your marriage is falling apart. But at church, you hold hands, you put on a smile, you keep everything hidden, and it's all okay. Publicly, we may look like good, outstanding Christians. And privately, we're indulging in our anger, in gossip, in our sexual brokenness, in slander. We tend to think that we have these private areas of our life where we can kind of do whatever we want as long as no one gets hurt. And Jesus sees right through all that. He sees all of it right through to what it really is, this hypocrisy. We try to wear these different masks, put on these masks to hide who we really are. And Jesus is warning us by unveiling to us how things truly are. But here's, don't miss this. The point is not to leave us in condemnation. Jesus is not walking around being like, you're a hypocrite, you're a hypocrite, you're a hypocrite, good day. Jesus is pointing these things out to draw us out of ourselves to him. His judgment, it's like he wants to shake us awake to see what is actually going on. Because Jesus doesn't want the fake version of you. He doesn't want the idealized version of you. He doesn't even want the church version of you. He wants the real you. He wants your heart with all of its brokenness and sin and darkness that we think we're doing a good job keeping hidden. And he's saying, no, put all of those external things aside and come to me. Bring your heart to the light of my grace. So the scribes, they, they ain't who people thought they were. They looked really religious. They looked like they loved God. They looked like they had everything together, but they were hypocrites. So Jesus is revealed as judge. The scribes are revealed as hypocrites. And finally, the widow is revealed as oppressed. The widow is revealed as oppressed. So did you notice that I kind of skipped over a, a confusing phrase in that last passage. It wasn't because I didn't want to talk about it, uh, but devouring widows' houses. What in the world does that mean? I've been hungry before, but I've never tried to eat furniture or a wall or anything like that. So what is going on? Well, this all flows together. There's a point that this, this next passage comes right after what Jesus said to the scribes. So let's read it. Mark 12, starting in verse 41. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. In our day, this is about worth a dollar, is what she put in. 
And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, if you've ever heard this passage before, which if you have been in church for any time, you probably have heard this passage before, you've heard it taught as an example of generosity, right? Kind of goes like this. Hey, look how generous this widow was. She didn't have hardly any money, and yet she still gave. What matters is not the actual amount of giving. What matters is your heart and whether this giving is actually sacrificial. Now, all those things in some way are true. Jesus points out the generosity of this widow, that she, uh, that he looks past the amounts given and sees straight into the heart. He sees this widow, he judges her faithful, he commends her for her giving, and she's literally giving everything she has her whole life in worship to God. But there's something else going on here that we often miss. This isn't a passage primarily about generosity or why we should give. It is about oppression and the effects of our hypocrisy. This story is the living picture of what it means to devour widows' houses. Do you get that? The scribes are lining their pockets while this widow literally empties her bank account to support them. Her bank account that had $1 in it. This woman has been brought to financial ruin while the scribes are in the streets asking for more money. If you've ever read any amount of the Old Testament, you're gonna come after so many passages that talk about the widow, the orphan, and the poor, over and over again. They represented the vulnerable in society that God had a particular care for. And you gotta remember, in Jesus' day, there wasn't social security, right? There was no safety net. And women had few legal rights. So here's what that meant. If you were a woman, a married woman, and your husband died, you were in a tough position. Legally, financially, socially. To survive, a woman, a widow, would often need help from family or from the community to just even make it after that point. And so God, he makes it a priority in the scriptures to call his people to care and support the widows, the orphans, and the poor. And this poor widow ticks two of those boxes. But listen, instead of supporting widows like this one, the scribes were bleeding them dry. At this point, she literally, when she gives this, has now given every dime she has. And Jesus, by drawing attention to this, is judging the scribes as the devourers they were. Their greed and their hypocrisy, it actually came at a cost. And here's kind of the point. The religious leaders had taken God's heart for the poor 
and twisted it to exact offerings from them. The whole system was broken. Do you get that? It's all broken. Jesus, in the very beginning, comes into the temple and he's flipping over tables and he's saying, you guys are making this a den of robbers. And now he sees this widow at kind of his last day in the temple give her last dime to support the people who are twisting the scriptures, feeding their egos, lining their pockets. And next week, Jesus is going to go into more detail to describe exactly what kind of judgment this broken system is going to receive. But for now, what does this mean for us? Well, when we give ourselves over to hypocrisy, what often happens is we neglect the call of Jesus to care for the outcast and the vulnerable and the needy. When we are all about our own kingdom, we rarely see outside of that to the people that Jesus is calling us to reach, to care for, to support. And here's how James later on, he ties, listen to how he ties hypocrisy with the neglect to care for the needy. In James 1, he says this, if anyone thinks he is religious, and does not bridle his tongue, but what deceives his heart. That sounds like hypocrisy to me. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To what? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. See, the scribes were so concerned with building their own kingdoms, with acquiring wealth and honor, that they failed to even notice the widow next to them who desperately needed help. So here's, here's the deal. We look at these people, the widow. She ain't who we thought she was. She is a picture of the ways our supposed love for God has not driven us to love our neighbors as ourselves. So where do we go from here? Just a couple things as we, as we wrap up. First, where are you trying to hide from the piercing eye of Jesus? He sees through the external and he sees straight to our hearts. He reveals to us what is real and true and Jesus is lovingly calling us, calling you out of hypocrisy and into his light. He's calling us to stop building our own kingdom. And here's the question, in particular for followers of Jesus, are you willing to receive Jesus not just as Lord and Savior, but as judge? As the one who has the final say of what is right and what is wrong as the one who peers into our hearts and sees it? Are we willing to accept that? The second thing we need to remember is that we cannot forget the love of Jesus that drives him. Jesus is not a judge who points the finger and walks away. 
Rather, he wants us to come face to face with the truth so we can change. And even more than that, he wants us to embrace him as judge and savior. And this is in some ways what baptism pictures, right? In baptism, what we're doing is we're saying, my old life has died. My life in sin and brokenness has died. And now I'm raised to a new life. And in essence, in baptism, what we're saying is, hey, Jesus is right. He's judged rightly. He has seen what's inside of me. And it's a mess. And I need him. I want to follow him. I want to receive what he is speaking to me as truth. And Jesus, shortly after he delivers this condemnation, in a matter of just a couple days, Jesus is going to go to the cross where he's actually going to take on our judgment. He's going to carry our sin. He's going to carry our hypocrisy. Do you see the heart of Jesus? He doesn't want to leave us where we're at. He's calling us out and he dies to rescue and save us from our brokenness. And he calls us to trust him and to follow him and to give up him our whole lives. Here's the deal. Becoming a follower of Jesus, it's not for the faint of heart. It often feels like open heart surgery where Jesus sees in us and he sees through us. But here's the deal. Following Jesus is richer and truer and more beautiful than anything this world has to offer. It's really hard, it's really hard to hear Jesus' words and to just receive them. But when we do and when we get to actually come to him with our true selves, like it is freeing and it is amazing to actually have a God who sees us as we are, the dark places you try to hide and loves us still, chooses us still, goes to the cross to take our judgment still and offers us his life.